with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. I am your host, Scott J. Allen, and this is Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. Now, I am a professor of management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. In addition, I'm a husband and father of three teens. Now, this is a family endeavor. Will played the intro, Kate voiced the intro, and who knows, you may hear from Emily a little later. I'm also an author, entrepreneur, speaker, and co-founder of the Collegiate Leadership Competition. I love to travel, explore new places with family, and learn from others. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion about all things leadership and followership, if we're honest. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. I am proud to share a few updates. According to Listen Notes, Phronesis is listed as among the top 3% of podcasts in the world because of you. So thank you. In addition, the podcast has two sponsors. First, Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ila-net.org. My second sponsor is the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. At Bowler, we offer several advanced degrees and MBAs, and I'm confident that there's one that will fit your location, interests, and timeline. In fact, our online MBA is ranked as the number one in Ohio and number nine in the United States. We offer international study tours, a contemporary and forward-looking curriculum, and access to senior leaders and flagship organizations. Learn more at business.jcu.edu. You can find links to both sponsors in the show notes. Now, if you like what we're up to, please hit subscribe so you can stay current as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others, friends, colleagues, leaders, teams, students, and others you think will benefit. And now, today's show. Okay, good evening, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to the Phrenesis Podcast. And today, I have Dr. Henry Mintzberg, a name that is known to many Uh, He's a writer. He's an educator. Most of his work focuses on managing organizations, developing managers, and most currently, rebalancing societies. And that's really where a lot of our conversation is going to focus today. But a little more on Henry. Uh, After receiving his bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from McGill in Montreal and uh, working in operational research for the Canadian National Railways, uh, he did his master's and PhD at the MIT Sloan School of Management. He made his professional home at McGill, and he's had extensive visiting professorships at INSEAD in France and the London Business School in England. He's authored 20 books, including Managers Not MBAs, Simply Managing, Rebalancing Society, and Managing the Myths of Healthcare. He has also authored 180 articles, plus numerous commentaries and videos. He publishes a regular TWOG. This was a new term for me, T-W-O-G, a TWOG, Mm -hmm. which means tweet to blog. You know, I'm going to put all of the information to how to access Henry on Twitter and his blog in the show notes. So you'll have all of that information. A collection has recently been published under the name Bedtime Stories for Managers. And following that will be Understanding Organizations, dot, dot, dot. Finally, (laughs) a revision of his book, Structure in Fives. Now, this was the the, the most fun fact that I discovered on your on your website is that you collect 
beaver sculptures. And I love your description. A, a very open-minded museum someday may, may house all of your beaver sculptures. <laughs> that is wonderful. You know, the MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art in New York, has always featured mammals as artists. So why not beavers, after all? <laughs> um, they're different from driftwood in the sense that they're worked. And they can be quite spectacular. Anyway, they're on my website, yeah. Do you discover these on your own? You find them? Yeah, most of them I picked out of the water. Virtually all of them I picked out of the water myself. A couple, two or three were given by friends. I've probably got a 50 that are showable. Oh, that's <laughs> um, wonderful. And they're all over the house. And the funny part is they're placed in the house in such a way that nobody comes in and says, what are all these things? No, Most people don't even notice. <laughs> they're just here and there. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. That's absolutely wonderful. What my family loves the outdoors. So that uh, collection resonates with me for sure. Anytime that we can be out in nature is a, a good day for the Allen family. Along some of that vein, a, a lot of where we're going to spend some of our time today is really this whole notion of rebalancing society. Because in many ways, uh, you've come to the conclusion that uh, we are out of balance. And in fact, we've been out of balance, at least a number of countries have been out of balance for some time now. And on your website, and in the section about rebalancing society, you have these seven basic points. And I think the structure I want to use today is just bring listeners into your thinking. I'm going to read a statement that you have on the site, and then I would just love for you to talk to that, to speak to that. And I think the first one is balance. A healthy society balances a public sector that is respected with a private sector that is responsible and a plural sector that is robust. Yeah, you know, you can go all over the world and find countries that violate this in one way or another. The communist countries who are completely out of balance on the side of government government was strong. I don't know if respected is the right word, but business was weak. And uh, communities, what I call a plural sector, public-private plural, the community sector is very weak. To this day, China can't tolerate community groups, whether they're ethnic or religious or political or social or anything. So, and then you can go around the world and, you know, the populous countries now, like Hungary or Venezuela, Interestingly, Hungary on the right and Venezuela on the left, but what's the difference, are totally out of balance on the side of populism, on the side of communities, basically. They represent communities. The uh, liberal democracies, particularly the US and the UK, I personally think are way out of balance on the side of business, on the side of the private sector. You know, the Declaration of Independence of the United States, the whole purpose of it, uh, was to make sure government didn't come back the way the King of England did and dominate the society. So they weakened government by dividing power between the three branches. And that left the door open for business that could... And, and now it's kind of gone off the deep end because of uh, essentially the, the Citizens United opening up the doors to political donations. It's kind of legalizing bribery. And then, so you have the communist countries out of whack on the side of government, and you have the liberal democracies out of whack on the side of business, and then you got the populist countries out of whack on the side of the plural sector communities. 
Yeah. And so those are some of those different forms of imbalance that you talk about. And then you also talk about this imbalance today, you know, the belief that capitalism has triumphed. And that was in 1989, throwing many countries, especially the liberal democracies of the West, out of balance ever since on the side, like you said, of the private sector interests. Can you think of any other examples where you have a context other than maybe China or Russia that are experiencing some of those imbalances? Well, let's talk about the other side of that. The Economist does an index every year of democracies, and they uh, they rate them very carefully uh, into full democracies, I think they call it, flawed democracies, hybrids, regimes, and autocratic regimes. There are 23 countries that are now full democracies, With a couple of exceptions, I think most of those are models of balance, particularly the Scandinavian countries, Denmark, Sweden, uh, all of them, um, New Zealand, Canada's number five, Mm -hmm. uh, which is the first big middle-sized country. Most of them are tiny. So if you look for balance, you'll find it there. Germany is quite balanced, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, Japan is the biggest of those countries that's in the list of full democracies, which means that the 10 biggest countries in the world are not rated as full democracies. The U.S., for example, is called a flawed democracy, I guess because of the role of money in politics and so on. But but you can go around the world. Of course, we're not even mentioning developing countries where, where there's an autocrat or a king or something completely dominating the country, totally out of balance in favor of whatever that person chooses to support. You could say, they don't put it this way, but you could say that The Economist is claiming that about 175 countries in the world are not balanced in in all kinds of ways. And I think, at least in the context of the United States, your opinion would be that it, it did used to be much more balanced. Would you agree with that statement? After World War II, just look at the period, for example, when Lyndon Johnson was president, and he was a lot less popular than Ronald Reagan. But Johnson, look at the welfare programs during the 670s. The welfare programs were hugely generous. Look at the tax rates in the United States. They were high. People paid a hell of a lot of tax. Look at those situations now. So the U.S. was much closer to balance. And the plural sector the community sector, the Americans are the greatest organizers on earth. I mean, Americans will organize everything. They're amazing. <laughs> I should say I'm Canadian just to make it clear. So we're the great uh, observers of the United States. And de Tocqueville used the word associations when he wrote about democracy in America in the 1830s. And he used the word associations and said that American democracy was critically dependent on these associations that were neither business nor government. Now, things have swung so far towards business, even the NGOs in the US, a lot of them act like business, even though they're not technically business. So the US has swung seriously out of balance. Jefferson wrote a letter in 1816, saying that that business is going to take over the country if we're not careful. 1816. Wow. Took 200 years, but I think it's fair to say business is much, much too influential. I love business. I love my car. I love my. I love restaurants. I. I love business, but Zoom, all that, uh, in its place, which is the marketplace, not in the political space. In one portion of this page on the website, you talk about 
balancing to face threats and that the major threats that we face today, warming, weapons, lopsided distribution of wealth, that a country that is achieving greater levels of this balance will probably be better prepared to face those threats. So even if we go back to, let's say, the Scandinavian countries, it would seem that even just as that one case study on, say, the topic of global warming, that they've attacked and they've approached those topics uh, in a much more balanced way than maybe some other countries around the world that would be out of balance, right? But but look at COP26, the recent meeting on environment, which I call COP26, because they copped <laughs> out for the 26th time. And there were 300 lobbyists from the energy sector alone. And a number of those were actually part of delegations, including the Canadian delegation. So Canada gave a seat at the table to the energy companies that were there for one reason alone. They would claim another reason, which is we want to make sure that what you do is doable, of course, but it wasn't coincidental that they were there to make sure that nothing damages their their markets. There were three, those 300 people outnumbered any national delegation. I maintain we will get nowhere with climate change, nowhere with climate change until we rebalance society. In other words, if you want to put your attention into climate change, put your attention into rebalancing society, because until there's the rebalance, we will never get anywhere with climate change, anywhere really serious. In climate change, we have four-year governments making 20, 30, 40-year plans. I mean, give me a break. You know, Obama comes in and, and makes a climate plan, and Trump comes in and throws it in the garbage, and Biden comes back and puts it in, and somebody else will throw it in the garbage. It's about action. It's not about planning. Uh, another thing about balance. If you work for McDonald's in in Copenhagen, you're making $25 an hour. In other words, you can live a decent life. The price of that, if you compare a Big Mac in Copenhagen with a Big Mac in New York, it's about a dollar difference from what I gather. So that's a small price to pay for democracy. If you live in McDonald's, you can barely, or work at Walmart or whatever it is, Amazon, you can barely make ends meet. In uh, Scandinavia, they make sure that people are paid properly. Well, let's talk about the leadership challenge, how that balance is restored. Because as you know, there's whole systems and infrastructure in place now that care deeply. They are invested in keeping things the way they are. So how do we begin to think about shifting the balance to get somewhere new so that we're better prepared to tackle some of these challenges around weapons or climate, any number of different societal woes that we're experiencing. In the United States, a a smaller middle class that used to be very much the backbone of our country's success is shrinking, it's decreasing, it's getting smaller. And of course, that throws things off as well. How do we shift it? You know, People think it's about leadership. You know, we just have to elect the right person and they'll magically bring this in. But I think Franklin Delano Roosevelt had it better. Uh, When a black activist asked him to support his cause, Roosevelt said, I know, I, I believe in it, I support it, go out and make me do it. And therein lies the issue. 
It's the people on the ground who are going to make the leaders do it. The leaders will not do it. Some businesses are responsible, other businesses are irresponsible, but business has to attend to business. And government can only attend to issues if it's got the support of the population. So these things start on the ground. And, and the model I use is the Reformation, because Luther was a nobody. He was a monk. He was a monk who did a piece of paper and put it on a church and changed the uh, Christian world. You know why? In the terms we use today, he used the, he didn't, but they used the uh, new social medium to go viral. What do I mean? The printing press was the new social medium. Uh. His students took those 95 theses on that sheet of paper, printed them up and spread them around the villages, and it went viral. And it went viral because people were fed up with the corruption. And it changed the whole Protestant world or Catholic world. It's action on the ground that forces or encourages or pushes leadership to move. And what's interesting or the puzzle that I keep going back to, uh, Henry, I, I just I struggle to really make sense of this in a society where, in part, we are fueling the, the division. We are fueling by, by either what we click on because the big tech is then making more money. The algorithm is elevating the story even further. So more people click. We are consuming our way into this divisiveness, into this fear, into this anger, this frustration. And whether it's Kim Kardashian, we're clicking and making her a billionaire. Or Housewives of New York, we're watching. Or divisive media, we're consuming. Yeah. And when the boots on the ground are fueling the divisiveness, <laughs> yeah, exactly. it's, a, it's a fascinating puzzle. I mean, it really is. How do you shift that? How do you shift that whole monetary system so that people are clicking on different stories, different media, different approaches? I, I find it fascinating. Well, you know, people, if people are scared enough, if you want another model of how do you change society, use COVID. Now, if you were interviewing me in 2019, and I said, you know what, Scott, I think we're going to lock everybody in their houses for a few months and close down the economy. <laughs> they would lock me up. <laughs> right? Yes. But we were scared enough that we did it. And, and of course, if you look at the numbers too, because, you know, we've got this famous truckers thing going on and in Canada now, if you look at proportions, the Canadians are Canadians are about eighty percent double vaccinated. Truckers are ninety percent vaccinated. Truckers yeah. are ninety, and it's ten percent of those. It's among the ten percent who are causing all this fuss. So, so people are prepared to do pretty radical things. I don't go around looking for vaccinations to stick in my arm. Believe me, that's not my idea of a good time. Yes. Okay. But, but the evidence. <laughs> But the evidence is pretty clear. So we get vaccinated. We were scared enough and pushed to the wall enough and so on that we did things we would never dream of doing. Well, if the icebergs are melting in Antarctica, I think that's a terrible shame. But, you know, I still have my ice cubes in my fridge if I'm having a drink or whatever. You know, it's no skin off my teeth in a way or back, or whatever the heck it is, the expression. So, you know, the people in in New Jersey who were hit with floods, or the people in the Midwest of the U.S. 
who are hit with floods or in Japan or wherever, um, they they get it. They get it. So are we going to have to wait till so many people have their lives or their houses or their their livelihoods destroyed before we wake up? You know, fixing this is far less radical than, than dealing with COVID. Mm. I mean, we had to go to real extremes for COVID. Fixing this is kind of a, a bit like you're saying, do we need all this consumption? My life isn't going to get horrible if I don't consume as much. You know, if I don't get a new iPhone or a new car, my life isn't going to suffer. And our economies don't have to suffer if we shift from production goods to services. So we can spend more on entertainment instead of things. We can spend more on healthcare. We can, you know, uh, educate our kids better. Finland probably has the best public school system in the world. Yeah. They pay their teachers substantially. Well, that's a good way to use our money. Yes. <laughs> and, and keep the economy going, you know. We don't yeah. have to all produce more and more goods and load up more and more plastics all the time. Talk about this declaration of our interdependence. I find this really intriguing. Would you share with listeners a little bit about that? We, in this house where I'm sitting now, which is about an hour outside of Montreal, I held a retreat with a number of people to brainstorm about rebalancing society. And one of the guys there, an American guy, kept saying, we got to look at the Declaration of Independence. We got to look at the Declaration of Independence. But we had agendas and we were looking at other things. So a couple of us, also another American guy and I, were driving home in the car. He was in the back and I was driving. And he opened his iPhone and he started reading the clauses of the Declaration of Independence. And we started to paraphrase some parts of that. Uh, my favorite part is we hold these truths to be self-evident that all people are created dependent. All people, <laughs> all people are created dependent on each other, our earth, and its climate. So the Declaration of Independence was a brilliant document for its age, but it emphasized individual rights. And we need to balance, as we talked about before, individual with collective and community rights. Yes. We need more of a balance. So I'm all, I'm as individualistic as people get, or to some extent anyway, um, I don't want to do without my individual needs, but we have collective needs. We need a police force. Uh, we need government that's respected. You know, if we don't have respected governments, we're in trouble. And that's what's going on in the U.S. Well, and if, if the system is not yielding candidates who are willing to work with one another, willing to collaborate, willing to put the problem at the center versus my politics, it's, yeah. it, it hurts everyone. It absolutely hurts and, and damages everyone because yeah. there's no progress. There's absolutely you know, no progress. These truckers in Ottawa are marching with placards saying, we want to be free. We want our freedom. I demand my freedom. And they're demanding their freedom by denying the freedom to the citizens of Ottawa who are up all night with the horns blaring, who can't get to their stores or their work or their livelihood many of them, because the truckers are demanding their freedom. Well, should they have their freedom as at the expense of the citizens of Ottawa's freedom? Freedom is not an absolute thing. Freedom is balanced in a communal way and in a collective way. As you think about even kind of reflecting on this work, Henry, what are some contemporary thoughts that have kind of come to mind for you? Any 
right this moment kind of thinking as you continue to reflect on this this challenge of balance that comes to mind? Well, you know, Scott, it comes back to your earlier question about what drives things and so on. And the question I keep asking myself is what's dumbing us down? Mm. What is dumbing so many people down? And I'm not referring to people who don't vote the way I like to vote. I'm referring to some of the stalwarts of America. Like, you know, there have been articles by Albright, by Kissinger, by Soros, by others talking about how America has to save the world. And America has done amazing things with the Marshall Plan and so on. That was noble America, but they they talk as if there's no such a thing as nasty America, supporting Pinochet, Vietnam, a whole series of things. Is noble America more or less than nasty America? I don't know, but but there's certainly both front and center. Here you have some of the best so-called minds in America who are just plain dumb. Okay, mm. so, so the dumbing down is everywhere. And, you know, I was reading a book by Harari, you know, the guy who did Sapiens, this well-known book, and he's got another one on 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. And I read something there, and it was like sort of a revelation to me about this dumbing down. He starts off by saying, it's our disconnect from nature that's getting in, in our way. And the social media are causing us to be more enticed by social relations. So we don't reflect. I had written about reflection, but I didn't make this connection with dumbing down. We don't sufficiently reflect. We just follow the crowd. So what happens is you follow the club that you belong to. You know, if you're in a liberal club, then you believe in what Biden's doing or whatever. And if you're in the conservative club, then you're like Cruz or whoever, God help us. And not that I'm against conservatives. Conservatives have perfectly good, but these guys aren't conservatives. These guys are nutcases. You know, so so everything is kind of, you join the club and you don't think about the issue. It's, you line up, if it's abortion, you line up for, you line up against. Well, anybody who's against abortion of any kind, like that a 12-year-old who's raped should bring a baby to term, is monstrous. But I can understand the other extreme, which is abortion is not a convenient form of birth control. Okay. And it should be, you know, you should do it with care and so on. So so we take these things to extreme because we don't, we belong to the club and the club dictates what we think. And that's what's dumbing us down, I realize. Yep. Well, I don't know if you've explored the work of, of Robert Keegan at Harvard in the Graduate School of Education, some mm-hmm. of uh, his work around adult development. Have you explored that, Henry? Oh, Keegan, eh? I, I know the name. Yeah. I, I will send you a couple of resources and put some resources in the show notes. But yeah, it's very interesting. If if he, he's an adult development theorist and, you know, he talks about different complexities of mind and it's an adult development stage theory. And mm. essentially, if if I'm at a lower developmental level, I might see the world in a very dualistic this, that, right, wrong, what's in it for me, me, my, mine kind of perspective. Stage three might be an individual who consumes whatever uh, is in their sphere that's called the socialized mind. If it's Republican or if it's Democrat or if it's Catholicism, if it's Judaism, I'm going to consume it wholeheartedly. That's my tribe. That's my community. Mm -hmm. And I struggle at times from a complexity of mind standpoint to kind of get out of that and see 
maybe some of the limitations of some of those beliefs, or maybe to your point, what we need to own, what we have done that's been atrocious in in world history that we wouldn't be proud of, right? Mm -hmm. But that takes a certain complexity of mind to be able to reflect on some of those aspects, right? Uh, It takes a a brilliant mind to be able to hold, I forget exactly how you said, to hold two thoughts in your mind at the same time and not get confused. He said yes. Yes. Are we producing citizens that have that complexity of mind to be able to value the balance? Or is it really just about me? Yeah. And there's factions of people who, at least my experience in the last two years, where you say, wear a mask, protect others, they can't, it's about them. They can't bring themselves to make that decision. Yeah. It's about me or it's about us. It's about my tribe or it's about me, myself. Yes, 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 yes. As we wind our time down, and I don't know that we're going to solve the world's problems, but what I'm (laughs) going to do is share the resources you've created because I think it's a wonderful way of thinking. And I even loved the little tour that you took me on and our listeners on of the world on how some societies are out of balance how some societies are more in balance. Of course, we're not going to have any society that's perfect, any country that's perfect. But generally speaking, you're going to start seeing signs and symptoms. Uh, if, if individuals are attacking your capital or burning down police precincts, uh, we're sick. We're not well. We're not in balance. We're out of balance. And yep. those are symptoms of some of that lack of balance. A question I have for you is what have you been reading or streaming or listening to that's caught your attention lately? And it could have stuff to, something to do with what we've just discussed. It may have nothing to do with what we've just discussed. But what's caught your eye in recent months? I'm really struck by Harari, uh, an Israeli guy who wrote Sapiens, which was a huge success. I'm reading the one on 21 lessons for the 21st century. And some of them I don't agree with, but but one of them, really struck me. I'm just trying to figure out what is dumbing us down. And I think he hit it perfectly. Mm. Well, I really enjoyed uh, Sapiens as well. That was a great book, even in the beginning where we we learned that there were a, a number of different sapiens and homo sapiens, yeah. quote unquote, one. Yeah. <laughs> and we don't no. really know how, if we made it our way to, to winning or if we destroyed one another, but just absolutely fascinating, right? Yeah. Uh, and it kind of starts there and then takes you on this journey. It's a great, great read. And he writes brilliantly. He mm. writes absolutely brilliantly. I'm, I'm very, very thankful for your good thinking and helping us frame up and think through some of these really challenges that we face. And I know that your work has fundamentally shifted how I think about some of these challenges that we are facing. Uh, Because again, there's some symptoms in a lot of different places around the world that we aren't well. And why is that? What's going on? And probably just like our bodies, when things get out of balance, then uh, symptoms start to show. Yeah, And yeah. I think it's a, such That's a great way of helping us think about some of these challenges we face. I thank you for your good work, sir. I thank you for your time today. So much appreciated. And uh, I look forward to talking again. Scott, uh, you did your homework beautifully. And I love the questions and I love the conversation. 
you're if 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 more people were like you, we wouldn't be in bad shape right now. <laughs> Thank you. I, that's that's the best compliment I've ever received at the end of an episode. So thank you, sir. Okay. All right. <laughs> you have to have me on again. I'll try not to do it. We have a system in place that's yielding certain results. And within that system, there are centuries of inequity. There are recent losses of stability. There are pandemics and any number of other shifts that have challenged our ability to navigate effectively our course for the future. And some of these things, some of these things, whether it's truckers at the border in Canada or whether it's people in protests in the streets, those are symptoms that maybe we aren't well in certain areas. So what do we do? How do we rebalance, minimize the gap between opportunity, help people feel like they belong, like there are opportunities, like there is hope? And how do we help shift the system so it yields new results? It's a question I'm constantly thinking about. I think leadership is part of the answer. How we think about leadership, I think, is incredibly important. If we go back to our discussion with Ron Riggio, or if we go back to our discussion with Barbara Kellerman or many others, this is a phenomenon that is co-created. And how do leaders unleash energy in the system to help us get somewhere new, somewhere better, somewhere with greater levels of equity and opportunity so that people can be whatever they hope to be? As always, thank you so much for tuning in, exploring, looking at some of these nooks and crannies and trying to think through what we can do and how we can be a part of some of those shifts. Take care, everyone. Be well. Thank you to Dr. Mintzberg. Bye-bye. You have just finished another episode of Practical Wisdom for Leaders with Scott Allen. To contact me, visit www.scottjallen.net. Or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and LinkedIn, so let's connect. Now, if you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. One final nod to our sponsors, the International Leadership Association and the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.